Um, hey, welcome again. Glad you guys are here. If you've missed any of our messages in this series so far uh, on godly relationships, you can go back to our website and listen to them through the website, or you can go uh, Google Play or iTunes, and we, we uh, put the podcast on there. So you can always catch up. And I think it's important that we hear what God says about relationships. This isn't strictly a marriage message. So many of the relationship ones are about marriage specifically, but there's so much that the word has to say about a godly relationship, whether that's friendships, family relationships, business relationships, marriage, of course, all kinds of different aspects of relationship. And if we get any of them wrong in their foundation, they can skew everything. In fact, the enemy wants nothing more than to have you follow along with what the world says a relationship should look like. Me first, get mine. You deserve to be happy. Get yours first. Find someone that makes you happy. I love that one. The only one that can make us happy is the Lord. And so if we have a relationship with him right, if we have an understanding of what his design for relationship looks like, then that goes into every aspect of our lives. Again, whether it's romantic relationships, business, family, all these, it all flows from this idea that we talked about in the very first message I taught on what agape love is. I taught about agape love, and it's important that we understand that concept. In a nutshell, if you've missed it, Agape love, sometimes we throw that term around and you hear it from time to time. Agape love, though, is sacrificial. Bless you. Sacrificial love. It means placing the wants and the needs and the desires and the well-being of everyone you come in contact with above your own. Not just those you like, not just those you love, not just family, Everyone you come in contact with, we are told that that should be the outflowing of a Christian heart. Is this idea that Jesus modeled for us. Jesus loved you so much. and Father God loved you so much that he gave his most prized sacred possession, his son Jesus, for you. And it wasn't dependent on what you did or what you didn't do or even whether you accepted him or not. He did that because he so loved the world. That's that model of sacrificial love. It's not dependent on what someone else does. It's how we should live our lives, though. And if we have that concept down, everything else flows from that. But if the enemy can skew that, if he can twist that, if he can pervert that, then everything else starts to cascade and tumble down from there. We need to understand that. So, With godly relationships, I think, under attack like never before, at least in avenues of never before, you see social media, you see movies, you see television shows that really get to the point where they're just outright mocking a, a, what we used to call a nuclear family, but this, this idea of a godly family a lot of times just gets mocked. And it's the dysfunctional ones that get held up as like, ah, look at that. They get celebrated, all the dysfunction in a family. And that's where we find ourselves. So I think it's important, God laid this message on my heart uh, to teach not only this message but this series because of that rare, very reason. We need to lay a foundation for what a godly relationship looks like. So one of the things I'm going to do as we open all these messages, and I taught this last week, Gabe and I have gotten in the habit 
We pray all the time, as pastors, we pray all, I pray all the time for you and the church and for all kinds of different things. But we started specifically, intentionally, about a month ago, a little over a month ago, praying for you, praying for your relationships, praying for your finances and your health and that of this church and, and basically just spending time intentionally every night to pray for you. And I think it's a great habit to get into. It's done a lot personally for my heart and my peace as I go to bed knowing that I've done that. So I want to model that. Let's just take a moment and let's just pray today. Let's pray for each other. Let's pray for our families. Here's two things I want to add on to our prayer here today, this morning, is this. In China, we have a number of friends who go to this church who have relationships in China. Um, we have some personal friends who have their children are actually doing missionary work in China, right in the province that's being hit the hardest with this virus that's breaking out. Obviously, we know it's coming over here now. Um, this is an ugly thing. So we want to pray against that. Another thing we want to do, this is something to celebrate. John and Joanna Brandberg, some of you know them. They used to be youth pastors at Jubilee Fellowship Church. They're good friends of ours. They are launching today their own church. It's called One Life Church, and it's over. It's in like East Aurora, uh, but today is their first day. They are godly people. They have a godly family. They are going to bring the gospel, and it's going to be a life-giving church, and I'm excited to see what God does for them. But I want as a body, as part of the ecclesia that I taught a couple weeks ago, I want to surround them and just pray for their blessing to be multiplied. All right, so join me in this. Heavenly Father, we just thank you, Lord God, that you, that you give us every good thing, everything we have, from the breath in our lungs to the shoes on our feet, the roof over our head. Everything, God, comes from you. So we thank you for that blessing. One of the many blessings you give us is those that you surround us with. So, Lord, we lift up our, our loved ones, our neighbors, our friends, other people in this body. Lord, we lift them up and we just ask that you bless them abundantly. We don't pray this for ourselves. We pray this that you would bless them. And if you need to use us to bless them, Father, we are available and we are here. Use us to bless those around us. Open our eyes to see those places where we can serve you and be a reflection of you in the kingdom. Father, we lift up One Life Church. We just ask that your presence be there today in a mighty way, that you would multiply their finances, that you would multiply the people who come to hear the word of God spoken in that place, that, that they would grow and they would multiply in such a way that you would have so much glory because of what you have done in that place. Father, we lift up the, the entire country of China, but those people specifically who are being impacted by this infection, this virus that's going around. Father, we pray your protection over those people. And I just pray, whether they know you or not, that there would be such a supernatural move of healing in that place that you would receive glory through it, and by that, people would come to know your son, Jesus. I pray for those friends and those family that we personally have who are being impacted by this, not only over there, but here, that you would heal them, that you would keep them safe, and most of all, you would give us peace, knowing that no matter what we see in the news, no matter what we hear, that you are still sovereign, you are still in control. Father, we love you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.
Amen. All right, let's get into this message. A couple weeks ago, a few weeks ago, when we, when we kicked this off, I taught this concept of agape love. Remember, agape love is just simply sacrificial love, not expecting anything in return. Then in the second week, I taught about the idea of the ecclesia, the ecclesia being the body of believers of Christ everywhere, no matter where they are. We are all part of this one body, and we should see each other as brothers and sisters. That relationship as part of the body of Christ uh, should govern the way that we think and the way that we interact with other churches and with, with each other within this church. And then last week, talked about business relationships, okay? Business relationships. And this, this concept, it's a Hebrew concept of avodah, which means work and worship. Work and worship are, are intertwined. You, you can't separate the concepts of work and worship. In other words, wherever God's got you, whether you're a student or uh, you work at home or in the business place, wherever God has you, your place of influence, that's your workplace in this context. And your work, whatever you do, whether you love it or whether you don't love it, that's where God has you. And the way that you act, the way you conduct yourself, that is your worship to the Lord. And it's important to have that. And that will govern our relationships with the guy who doesn't refill the copier, with the guy who empties the the last cup of coffee and doesn't make more. It's not about what he's done. It's about in your heart, how do you view those relationships? Are they an opportunity to spread the love of Christ? Or are they an inconvenience? I think we know what the Word says about that. So this week we're going to get into what the Word of God says about family relationships. That is a minefield, right? Family relationships. And why is it important that we understand family relationships? Because family relationships are an example of how we are to interact, not only with each other in the body of Christ as brothers and sisters, but with Father God with the Holy Spirit, with Jesus Christ. Families were instituted by God to be an example to us of how to interact. And when the enemy can twist that, man, again, everything just flows from that. So think about, think about your family, your, your immediate family and then your extended family. I've got some pictures here and I'll show you and I'll bet all of our families kind of fall within bits and pieces of these. How about this first one? Does this remind anybody of their family? Okay, we celebrate this family as being incredibly dysfunctional and funny, right? But there's elements of this family that I think we can all probably relate to. What about this next one? That's usually me sitting in the front right there going, yes, this is my family. Especially at Thanksgiving, Christmas. We all, again, somebody there probably resonates with somebody in your family. And then what about this one? What about that? The perfect family, right? Do you think everything is perfect in that family? Do you think everything is dysfunctional and broken in the first family? Cartoon family, right? So theoretically, we can see appearances and either judge dysfunctional or perfect, but it's got nothing to do with appearances. That very first family, you can take that down. The first or the second family, those, if that is a loving, nurturing environment where they support each other 
and they're a reflection to those around. Even if they're dysfunctional and there's craziness going on, that's more like what God intended. Families like this last one that look on the outside absolutely perfect can sometimes actually hurt us because we judge our families according to that and go, my family's not like that. I couldn't possibly get my kids to sit still, much less dress alike and sit still for a picture like this. There's nothing about that that resonates with my family. We judge ourselves against that perception of what's perfect, and the enemy can use that to tell you somehow that yours is broken. But there's elements, there's elements that are good, and there's elements that are broken in just about every family. And understanding that God has a plan, God has a design, and if we get back to God's plan and God's design, then everything will fall in line. Not only starting at your home relationships, your personal relationships, but outside then. So we need to understand that. The idea of family as God intended is under attack. Again, the, the, the perfect family a lot of times just gets mocked. And we celebrate all this dysfunction. It happens again and again. TV shows and movies, you see it all over the place. But God designed this idea of family, this family structure from the very beginning to be a reflection of his character. All the aspects of our family dynamics, whether it's husband and wife, father-son, father-daughter, mother-daughter, mother-son, sibling relationships, those are all meant to mirror aspects of God's character and to give us some insight in how to handle those relationships and then also how to interact with God himself. It's supposed to be an example like that. But then we see things in church where we throw around the word Father, even praying, Father God, okay? We talk about you being the bride of Christ. We talk about your brothers and sisters in this room. Well, how many people, when I say that, bristle? It happens. There are people who, when I say, when I'm praying and I say, Father God, immediately a wall goes up in their mind because my father wasn't loving. My father wasn't nurturing. My father certainly didn't put my needs ahead of his own. He was selfish. He was mean, or maybe he was absent entirely. I've got no context in my head for this Father God who will sacrificially love me no matter what I do. That's not the experience I had in my life. Same thing with the bride of Christ. The same thing, brothers and sisters, if your concept of what that is is not being born out in a godly way in your life, it colors how you feel about the Godhead, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, your relationships there are going to be skewed by what you see as your earthly relationship. And it can cause problems that go from there. Our past hurts and disappointments cause this filter or stronghold, if you will, about how we view everything else that comes from that. And we can struggle with that. We have a ministry here, our Sozo ministry, which is our deliverance ministry, we spend an awful lot of time in that deliverance ministry. Number one, we do deal with demonic, yes, but we also deal really primarily with strongholds. Strongholds are lies that we believe about ourselves, lies we believe about God or about each other. And strongholds, typically, we don't realize we have them. 
Somehow or another, in our life, something happened to where we now see everything from that point forward through that lens. Okay, whether it was a father who was either absent or or didn't treat us correctly or sibling relationships, we see all subsequent relationships through that lens, whether we know it or not. And it can hurt us sometimes. So let me give an example. If the idea of a loving Father God is something that you just have a hard time grasping, I can't possibly understand this concept that this all-knowing sovereign God, the creator of the heavens and earth, also cares about me and what I'm going through today. Surely he's so busy, he's somewhere else doing something much more important than me. If you struggle with thoughts like that, it may be, and I say may, be because you had a relationship with your earthly father that somehow or another led you to believe that's how God thought about you or would treat you. The same thing with the Holy Spirit. If you have a hard time getting this concept of a nurturing Holy Spirit who who will comfort you and who will, will dispense wisdom whenever you need it and, and, is, and is always there just to love you and help you with any situation you go through. If you have a hard time with that concept, it may be because the, the nurturing aspect of our family, which typically comes through the mother, was something that was absent or was skewed maybe in your family. So you might have a hard time with that concept. And then we go even one step further our very relationship with Jesus Christ. We teach that, that Jesus is with you always. You are never alone. He is a constant companion walking through life with you. But if you didn't have any sibling relationships that were like that, you would have no context for understanding somebody who's just, they just love you because they're a part of you sharing the same blood, sharing the same DNA as you, and let's just walk through life and and be together. They don't expect anything from you. They don't want anything from you. They just want to love and support you. If you don't understand that concept, it's going to be hard to understand that Jesus would be the same way. So all these relationships that we have with the Father, Son, Holy Spirit can be colored or skewed or twisted, worst case, by our family dynamics. So that's why we emphasize that in our sozo ministry, this forgiveness, this breaking down of strongholds to find out what God really says about that. Taking our experiences out of it, what does God say about it? And through that, there's so much freedom and then we have clarity and our connection to God himself can be tighter when we are not coloring it through our perception of what has happened to us. So this godly dynamic of of what a godly family looks like, that is, is under attack. If Satan can skew that, then everything else, again, flows from there. Our business relationships, our romantic relationships, our friendships, all will be skewed as well. So we need to understand what the Word says about this. So if we look at, at a godly relationship in regards to a family, There are a couple things that are required for family, for a godly family relationship. Number one, you have to have a husband and wife, and then you have to have children. If you do that, now you've got a family dynamic, and those things teach us each one of those aspects. So a husband and wife, 
the love between a husband and wife give us this context to help us understand what God's covenant love for us is. His promise, I will do what I pledge this day regardless of what you do or don't do. I say that very thing in every wedding I do. That's what a covenant is. And the idea of marriage helps us understand, at least in a human way, what that covenant relationship looks like. The ups and downs of parenthood. One day, you just love your kids and they're amazing. And the next day, you're like, how did this happen? I'm trying to be generous here. But it's easy to have those ups and downs with parents. But knowing how God loved his children, regardless of their ups and downs. Let's look at the model for that, the nation of Israel. God's chosen nation, his vessel, okay, chosen, special, set aside for him, and yet rebellious just about every opportunity they got. They would rebel. Whatever he told them to do, somehow or another, they'd get it wrong. And God never left them. He never forsook them. He never said, you guys are dead to me. Forget it. What he ultimately said is, I'm going to park you over here and keep you safe, and we'll get back to you. But his covenant with the nation of Israel never changed, and that's, that's the example for us with our children. Our children can be rebellious. Our children can do everything the opposite of what we're trying to teach them, but they're still our children. And it's that example then of how to do it. Even squabbles uh, between siblings, sibling squabbles. Biblical examples, let's look at the Jews and the Gentiles. The Jews saying, we were here first. We're dad's favorite. And we're not going to share any of this with you. Dad's always loved me the best. So we see that in the nation of Israel and with the Gentiles. That's our example to help understand those sibling squabbles. It is possible that a father loves both equally. Born into the same family, but again, often at odds. This is our example for what a godly family relationship can look like. Trouble, squabble sometimes, yes, but always loving, never forsaking. In fact, this whole idea is so important that at one point, God gave this list, this list of 10 things that were bullet points that were very important ways to live your life. Anybody remember what that list of 10 bullet points is called? It's called the Ten Commandments, we call it, right? From Exodus and Deuteronomy. Ten basic things that said, here's the law if you follow this law. Because at that point, they didn't have the Holy Spirit in them. So really, they needed, they needed just a set of rules in order to be able to even hope to live their lives the correct way. Here's this list of Ten Commandments. I'll just read them, just the short version. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall make no idols. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. Keep the Sabbath day holy. Honor your father and your mother. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. And you shall not covet. Ten basic rules to live by. And then, of course, there are like 10,000 sub-rules, right? Ten basic rules. You know the one, the only one of those Ten Commandments that comes with a promise? Do you know which one that is? Honor your father and mother. It's the only one that comes with a promise. Exodus 20, 12. 
It says, honor your father and your mother that your days may be prolonged in the land which the Lord God gives you. Now, in context, at that time, this promised land was the ultimate prize. And so what the Lord is saying is you honor your father and mother and your days in that place, that blessing that I'm promising you are going to be increased. But it starts with honor your father and your mother. That goes right along with thou shalt not kill Thou shalt not steal, thou shalt not commit adultery. Honor your father and mother. Why is that important? Because honoring our father and mother gives us a context for even hoping that we're going to be able to interact with the rest of God's children the proper way, much less interact with God himself. Later on, Jesus reminds us of the same thing. Matthew 19, 16. Someone comes to Jesus and says, Teacher, what good thing shall I do that I may obtain eternal life? And what's his answer? He says, obey the commandments. Do what you've been told. He says, Matthew 19, 19, honor your father and mother, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Always Jesus takes this law and adds another layer to it. The law says do this, but I also want you to have the right heart when you do it. See, family was was instituted by God, Adam and Eve, in the garden, the first family. But almost immediately after God instituted this idea of family, this idea of family dysfunction came into the picture. Almost immediately, right? Adam and Eve sinned. And what was Adam's response? He immediately blames his wife. And then he blames God. You gave her to me. So really, it's your fault if it's anybody's fault. And it all went downhill from there. Listen to this story about the true first family. Who's the true first family of all of creation? Adam, Eve, Cain, and Abel. Adam and Eve and their two boys, Cain and Abel. Perfect family in the garden, right? Everything was absolutely perfect in this family, right? Nothing ever went wrong. It's a test for those of you who see who, I can't wait to see what happened next. Genesis 4, verses 1 and 2. Now, the man, Adam, had relations with his wife Eve, and she conceived and gave birth to Cain. And she said, I have gotten a man-child with the help of the Lord. She's thankful for that gift. Again, she gave birth to his brother Abel, and Abel was a keeper of flocks, but Cain was a tiller of the ground. Okay, so two boys born to them. One is going to be a shepherd. The other one is going to be a farmer. Different calling, but their job is to work, and they're a part of this great first family. But then almost immediately, and this is another message for another day to talk about the depth of this, but Genesis 4, 3 to 5 says, So it came about in the course of time that Cain brought an offering to the Lord of the fruit of the ground. Abel, on his part, also brought of the firstlings of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. Again, another teaching for another day. We could do a whole series on just that idea. But here's the important part. So Cain became very angry and his countenance fell. Immediately, jealousy gets in the picture. Well, why him? Why is he special and not mine? 
He still had the chance to react in a godly way, but the flesh rose up and his countenance fell and he became angry. Genesis 4.8 is the outflow of this. Cain told Abel his brother, there's a punctuation there, and it came about when they were in the field that Cain rose up against Abel, his brother, and killed him. This is the outflow of that jealousy. Perfect family, right? The very first family, and immediately we have this kind of a dynamic. The, the Word of God, the Bible, is so full of all these stories that would probably, Jerry, Jerry Springer wouldn't even believe these stories. Let me give you a quick rundown of just a few of them. From Genesis 16, actually 16 through 22 chapters, Abraham and Sarah, okay, with Isaac, their son, and then Abraham and Hagar, his second wife, with Ishmael, and all the problems that came from that dynamic. That's pretty dysfunctional. Genesis 25 through 28, we see Jacob pretending to be his brother Esau in order to steal their father Isaac's blessing. And he steals the blessing away from his brother. A little sibling rivalry there, I think. Genesis 37, you get Joseph and his brothers where Joseph receives this word from the Lord and he goes out and tells them and they go, (laughs) we don't think so. Throw him in a well, beat him up. This is that family dynamic, right? 1 Samuel 20, Saul is trying to kill his son Jonathan with a spear, chucking spears at him simply because his son is trying to save David from being killed, helps him escape. So his response, I'm going to throw a spear at you, my son. 2 Samuel, we see David's son Absalom uh, rebelling against him. And on and on and on. And what's a common thread here? These are all people who are special to God. These are all people who are special to God, chosen for special reasons, and they still show us how messed up human beings can be when sin enters the picture. We still see that over and over and over again. The law alone cannot restrain sin. The law just can't do it. Okay, and the idea of Adam and Eve in the garden, all they had was innocence. And we see where innocence led them. Absolutely, human nature took over and sin entered the picture. And from there, it all went down until eventually, (coughs) excuse me, God gave the commandments to Moses and said, just try to live by these. Do the best you can to live by these. In fact, not do the best you can. It It was a law, but Later on, we see in Romans 8, 33 and 4, where Paul says this, what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, because no matter what the law says, we still have to interpret it with our flesh and live it. And that's virtually impossible. Weak as the flesh was, God did, sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh as an offering for sin. He condemned sin in the flesh so that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. In other words, the Holy Spirit in you is our only hope of getting this right. In your flesh, we will never be able to live the way that God intends. Through the Spirit, we have everything we need. The problem is, many times we ignore the Holy Spirit and we live our lives, especially family dynamics, according to the flesh. 
It's easy to let our pride, our hurt, our past experience, or even just misunderstanding twist what God has intended for us. Very, very easy. Here's an example. I have had people, (coughs) excuse me, I've had people actually use Scripture to tell me that Jesus commanded us to hate our family. Anybody believe that? Where Jesus, Jesus flat out told them in Scripture, you need to hate your family. Hate your brother or sister, your father, your mother. Hate them all. I've had people use that as justification for ignoring their family in the pursuit of what they call righteousness, in the pursuit of ministry or in the pursuit of, of this perception of holiness. And where they get this from is Luke 14, 26. It says this, if anyone comes to me, this is Jesus speaking, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Jesus' words. Whenever, and I teach this again and again, whenever you read Scripture and you go, that doesn't make sense to me, what do we need to do? We need to look at it a little bit closer. We need to look at some of those words. What is he really trying to say here? In this case, the key comes down to this word hate. Okay, obviously hate. Did Jesus ever teach that it was okay to hate someone? Never did. We have to reconcile everything we hear in Scripture with Jesus' teaching as a whole. That word hate translates as the Greek word meseo. The Greek word meseo means, it means a lot of things, but it means essentially to love something or someone less than something else. So Jesus isn't literally saying you need to hate your family. What this means is you need to love me the most. You need to love me more than your own life, more than your parents, more than your family. That's what that means. That's not to be twisted to say you need to hate your family or ignore your family. In fact, Scripture teaches us just the opposite, as I'm going to teach you here in just a minute. Matthew 22, 36 to 40 reads like this. Again, Jesus is asked, Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? And he said to him, Jesus' words now, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and foremost commandment. The second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And then the best verse of this whole thing, verse 40 says, On these two commandments depend the whole law and the prophets. The whole law and the prophets, he's referring to Everything we would call is the Old Testament. Everything in the Old Testament boils down to love the Lord your God and love your neighbor. I'm not saying you don't have to read the Old Testament, but now you know the crux of it. But even within Christian families, this whole dynamic is not always easy. It's not always easy because we, everything that comes our way, every experience we have, every interaction, we use it to color how we see them and what we expect out of them. It's such a difficult dynamic that even in the early church, they were having problems with this. Brand new Christians being taught by by apostles of the Lord, this new, new thing, Christianity, that they had. Even then, it was very easy for people to skew this idea. So we see this where we see the Apostle Paul writes this letter to one of his disciples, Timothy. Now, Timothy started hanging out with Paul. Essentially, he was like, he's like, 
13 years old. He was a very young man, started hanging out, and Paul started to disciple him. Now, fast forward, we see this church in Ephesus that Paul had actually founded, and Timothy is pastor of that church now. Timothy's about 35 years old or so at this time, and he is struggling with some issues that are going on in this church. And so Paul writes in this letter, outlining, read Timothy if you want to know, outlining these different issues they're going through. But this one specifically, what they're running into is Timothy is having a hard time interacting with his fellow people in this church, his congregants, his flock, because many of them are much older than him. Okay, and he's been placed there to pastor them, but how does he interact with them? You certainly can't go to a man who's, who's you know, been a Jew and he's converted and he's been in Scripture his whole life and knows it backwards and forwards, and you're trying to teach him something new. You can't teach him like you're talking down to him. You have to teach him with respect. And so Paul tells him this, 1 Timothy 5, 1 and 2, Do not sharply rebuke an older man, but rather appeal to him as a father. To the younger men as brothers, to the older women as mothers, and the younger women as sisters in all purity. So he's using this, this idea of a family dynamic on how you should deal with these other people. Some of them are difficult, some of them are not, but you should all treat them how you would treat a family member. But then he goes further, and the point of this whole thing is that there are people in this church who are essentially, they've gotten into this holiness contest, you spend six hours a day worshiping the Lord and, and reading the word, well, I spend eight. You spend eight, well, I spend 12. You spend 12, well, I live in the temple and in the synagogue, and I never go home. In fact, I don't remember the last time I saw my kids. I'm just in the word the whole time. I'm so much holier than you. This is an actual dynamic that's been going on here. So Paul has to write to Timothy. 1 Timothy 5.8 says, But if anyone does not provide for his own, and especially for those of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. He's saying you cannot ignore your family. Your family was given to you as a gift by God, and you can't pursue this idea of righteousness to the detriment of your family. And he even goes further to say you're worse than an unbeliever. Because remember, they were surrounded by a bunch of different miscellaneous pagan religions who didn't know the Lord, but even they knew how to treat their families. Even they interacted with their families in a loving way and took care of them. So being, being a loving family member, the idea of a, of a loving family, is not the exclusive domain of Christians. Even pagans can do that. This is what he's telling him, and it's not a good example when the outside looks in and sees how we treat our families sometimes. We need to do everything we do as unto the Lord and to be a reflection of who he is and his character. So we look at this idea of family love and family dynamics. It's, it's an instinctive kind of love. Even animals have love for their children and for their immediate families. We see this in the animal kingdom. Pagans do it. Christians do it. Everybody has this kind of instinctual love for their families. But it is subject to godly application. We can love our families just because we're born into it. 
But we need to apply that family love in a godly way in order to reflect him. So the Greek language had four different words for love. Anybody know what they are? Agape, sorge, phileo, and eros. You're right. You guys are smarter than the first service. They, they, everybody was blanked on, on storge love. Only two of those, agape and phileo, are found in the Bible. Eros and storge are not. We'll talk about eros at another time. But storge, it's a Greek word that means family love. Okay? But it also is, again, it's a natural kind of love. And the difference is, the reason storge is not written in the Bible, per se, that word is not, is because we're called to something higher than just natural love. We're called to a supernatural love. And here's how that plays out. Storge, first of all, the word, the Greek word, it means it's the bond among fathers, mothers, sons, daughters, sisters, brothers. It's a tight family kind of a bond, but again, it's a, it's a natural love. Now, again, I said the word storge doesn't appear in the Bible. The opposite of storge does. And Paul uses it like this when he's writing to the Romans. Romans 131, he's talking about characteristics of an unrighteous person. He says they're without understanding, untrustworthy, unloving, and unmerciful. That word unloving translates as estorgos, which is the opposite of loving, nurturing. So we see that word being used in, a, in its opposite right there, without natural affection. And then we go a little bit further down in that same letter, Romans 12.10, where he's encouraging them, be devoted to one another in brotherly love, give preference to one another in honor. That idea of brotherly devotion. Brotherly love, preference, devotion, that idea right there translates as philostorgos, which is a combination of phileo love and storgos family love. It's an application of those two things, and it's a higher form of love than simply that instinctual love. Okay, and that's where we see it. It comes from one. It means just to cherish, cherish your kindred. So, again, that word doesn't appear in the Bible we are called to something higher as believers in Christ. We are to be literally devoted to one another in love. That's what the word teaches us about family dynamics. So if you're sitting here and you've been patiently waiting to hear me expand on what does the Bible say about how I should treat my brother who's a jerk every time I see him? How do I treat my aunt who always comes over and... Smells funny and monopolizes conversation. How do I treat my father who is absent? He's just not in my life. If you're looking for that kind of practical application, okay, here it comes. Remember why, God, why I said that God instituted families to begin with. He instituted families to be a reflection of his character, right, and to give us some insight, some context into understanding our relationship with him and then with each other. So what we need to do is we need to look at the idea of families are not something that we simply have to deal with, okay? Families are something that was given to us by God, not only 
to help us understand how to interact with him, but to be an example to those around us. Because there are godly families and there are ungodly families, and a lot of times to the world, they look the same. How can we be an example then? So remember, even even Christ himself grew up in a family, right? Jesus Christ just didn't appear on the earth at 30 years old and say, here I am, the Messiah, let's do ministry together. He was born and grew up in a family. He had a stepdad, stepbrothers and sisters. There was some question or not whether his parents were married at the time that he was conceived. There was a lot of things swirling around that family. And ultimately, we know at some point between when he was 12 years old or so and when he began his ministry in his 30s, somewhere in that time, he lost his father. His father, Joseph, either left or died. We don't know for sure, but he never is mentioned again after that point. So he's got all these family dynamics that are very reminiscent of what a lot of us go through, right? Step-family dynamics, father's not always there, all these dynamics, and yet he was able to walk out and fulfill his calling. That family dynamic was put there to help him grow, to help him fulfill his calling, and to grow into who he was supposed to be. I talked about it when we were commissioning Cameron, but Luke 2.52 says, Jesus kept increasing in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and men. Family is there to help you understand these dynamics. So, if you're going to be a reflection of God's character, if your family relationships are going to be an example to those around you to help you grow, to help your children grow, to help you understand, here are some practical things I want you to just ask yourself, okay? It's a list. I've got nine things on this list. Ask yourself these questions. Am I respecting and submitting to my husband? If you're married, of course, ask yourself that question. Am I giving myself up for my wife? Am I obeying and honoring my parents? Am I reconciled to my siblings? Do I consider my family's welfare above my own? What can I do today to serve my family? In what areas do I need to ask my spouse's forgiveness? In what areas do I need to humble myself and ask for my child's forgiveness? Or maybe my parents' forgiveness? And then the last one, and this is the one I want to focus on, in what areas have I allowed Satan to influence my family and to make it less than God intended? If you answer those questions, they will guide you in how to interact with your family members. They will guide you straight to that place where you're not interacting in a godly way, where you have allowed sin in the form of pride or unforgiveness, where you have allowed that to creep in and damage your family relationships. And that's damaging to more than just you. That is not a reflection of who God made you to be, who God made your family to be. Now, there are times when your family relationship is either non-existent or it's broken to the point to where there's nothing you can do. At some point, Scripture tells us, guard your heart. Guard your heart. Your job is to interact with your family in a godly way, not to make them be godly. 
You can't force your family members to act in a certain way, but you can act in a certain way yourself. You can act as a follower of Jesus Christ. And sometimes you need to guard your heart because family is going to be family and you're not always going to be able to fix them, nor is it your job to. But we can interact with them as God intended. We can only do what we can do. So what we're going to do as I wrap up the message, worship team, you guys can come on up. I want to take a moment. Again, I can't tell you how to interact with every family member who's ever wronged you. I can't tell you how to fix dynamics that maybe aren't what God intended to be. But you know who can? God can. The Holy Spirit can speak directly to you. The problem is most of us don't ask that. We'll ask it in other situations, but when it comes to our family, we'll go, I've known my brother-in-law for all these years now. He's always been that way. I'm just going to deal with him the way I always deal with him. We don't take the time to seek the Lord. So we're going to pray right now. We're going to ask for a couple things. Number one, we're going to repent of ways in our lives that we have interacted with our family members that are not in a godly way. We're going to ask for their forgiveness. We are going to forgive them. And then just ultimately ask God what our step in this is, where we go from here. Okay, so would you join me in that prayer? Father God, we, first of all, we repent before you of, of ways that we have not interacted with our family in an honoring way to you. Places where we have allowed sin to affect and to color the ways that we deal with our family, ways that aren't honoring to you. You have placed our family around us for our good, for our benefit. Let us not see them as a burden or as a problem, but God, let me see them the way you see them. So Father, I repent of ever doing anything to dishonor you or my family members. I repent of harboring unforgiveness towards them. And I repent of anything I have done to cause unforgiveness in their hearts. Father, help show me ways that I can make this right. Help me to set aside this burden in my heart of ways I know that I have not done things the right way. And Lord, show me a strategy. Show me a solution. Father, I lift up my family members to you, those I love, those that are hard to love, and I ask for your blessing on their lives. I ask for your abundance and an increase in your presence in their lives. And most of all, Father, I just pray that you would guide me every interaction that I have with them, that it would be glorifying to you, that it would be a true reflection of what you want for me in the kingdom. Help me to see my family as a blessing. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. We're gonna go into communion now. If you're new here, we do communion a couple ways. At the crosses, we have juice. Uh, and bread and little gluten-free crackers. You can serve yourself or your family there. Uh, Gabe and I will serve you up here, and we have wine. Same thing with the crackers and the juice. But let's do this. We always say communion is done in remembrance of Jesus Christ, but it's also done for a couple other reasons. One is an acceptance of the sacrifice that he made for us, the sacrifice that he made on the cross for us. We're accepting that. And by accepting that, we are agreeing also to live our lives in accordance with his teaching. To not say, I know what the word of God says, but. 
we should say, I know what the word of God says, therefore. 1 Corinthians 11, 27 to 29 starts that way. Therefore, whoever eats the bread and drinks of the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner shall be guilty of the body and the blood of our Lord. But a man must examine himself, and in so doing he is to eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks, eats and drinks judgment to himself, if he does not judge the body rightly. So here's what I want to do. Worship team is going to play on. We'll go into communion. I want you to spend a few moments just seeking the Lord in ways that maybe you could improve a family relationship, ways where you have either intentionally or accidentally allowed that sin of family dynamic to enter your life. And then repent of that. And when you do, partake in the cup. Amen? Thank you, guys.
Declare 